this evening. The theme is the blessedness of the resurrection for his people. In shorthand, what do we yearn for? What do we yearn for as God's people? We will reflect upon this theme through considering our scripture readings as we did this morning. In Joshua, that incredibly famous chapter 24 that has enduring relevance through all time. The call to the people of God to examine their true identity and the hope that is set before them. In Matthew, the significance of the baptism of our King and High Priest. In 1 Corinthians, the significance of the resurrection for the individual and for the church as a whole. Thoughts on these verses will, I hope, help us to answer the question, what do we yearn for? What do we continually yearn for in our heart of hearts every moment of every day as God's people? Joshua posed the question to Israel, all Israel, gathered before him at an occasion that has validity for God's people, the church, through all time until Christ's return. It is the same message that we must ponder that Joshua presented to all Israel. Israel was called collectively and individually to examine themselves. Who do they identify as? Can they truly compare themselves with the true identity of God's standards for his people? Do God's people have the same yearning of heart that God has for them? Is our focus 100% on desiring eternal fellowship with God? And it is good to reflect upon the fact that God desires always eternal fellowship with his people. Butler writes that the identity of God's people hinges on the action of God in the history of his people. This concerns the Holy Bible from cover to cover. The historical redemption narrative of God, as we mentioned this morning, restoring his people to eternal fellowship with himself, given to us through the voice of another, the voice of the word of God. We must realise that our Holy Bible is the voice of another. It is the voice of God speaking to us through all generations. In the sovereignty and omnipotence of God, God chose to act 
according to his will, to act in his own freedom in the hope that the people he delivered from slavery would respond in the freedom granted to them. Why? In order to serve him. God is sovereign. God is simple. God is omnipotent. 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 He's above all things. And in his freedom, he desires that the freedom that he has granted to us, we would serve him. Not only is this the relevant is this relevant to interpreting the Old Testament narrative of Israel's story, but it impacts the church throughout all generations with the same gravitas, including the church in Scotland today. Will we collectively serve our Lord and Saviour, fulfilling Christ's command? Christ's command, as in Matthew 22, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Our reading in Joshua implies that such a choice, whether to fulfill the command to worship God alone or not, was not immediately forthcoming. We behold God and ponder whether we will worship him alone. Do we, as individuals, ponder that? Or have we moved on in our discipleship to have such further fervour and yearning for our Lord that he alone has first place and only place in our hearts for worship and adoration? We behold God and ponder whether we will worship him alone. In truth, this ponderance is nothing more than insanity. A deluded state of mind that there is life, a better life, without God. Thou shalt, and from a place of yearning love, reverence, awe and deep appreciation of our Lord and our God. God has granted us a living relationship with him by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we do not do this from a formal state of our praise and worship is not from a formal state of mind that this is something that I must do. Our praise and worship is from a deep yearning for our Lord. We cannot have enough of him. And we know that in our hearts of hearts. A people having experienced the saving acts of God can easily turn to murmuring, or to serve other gods? Is our yearning for the eternal or for the temporal? 
Are we exercising our spirituality, our spiritual eyes, as God must be worshipped in spirit and in truth? We, the church, benefit hugely from the law of God being written on our hearts since Pentecost. The fulfilment of the prophecy in Jer Jeremiah 31 and elsewhere. God sends Joshua, his leader, to assemble the people and remind them of the greatness of God's actions for them. Only under such leadership does Israel respond. Verse 15, And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you, ye will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. Joshua said, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It is your choice as individual Christians who you will choose to serve. And you know deep down in your heart that it must only be the Lord. In verse 16, And the people answered and said, God forbid that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. And yet Israel did. And much of the church today maybe can be seen as apostate or syncretic. A half-heartedness within the church but a half-heartedness is not an option. We must yearn for our Lord with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we must yearn for good theology. It is good theology that makes the church into being the pillar for the truth. And the land cries out for the church to be the pillar for the truth. And we must stand against error and we must stand against syncretism. When we come here to church on Sunday to worship together corporately, it is only to worship God together corporately. And we must come with that mindset. But who is our leader and example? None other than the Word of God incarnate, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And how does Jesus Christ lead his people? Through the work of the Holy Spirit as our guide. Our guide to resurrection life. And how do we obtain the Holy Spirit? through baptism. And that is why we're, we are now turning to our reading in Matthew as we focus on the difference between John's baptism and the baptism of Jesus. Because we need that understanding. We need to understand what the baptism in the Holy Spirit truly is all about. And the reason for that is the Holy Spirit is our guide 
our deposit guarantee of our inheritance, the one who stirs up within us our hope and focuses our eyes on heaven. So we must have a good understanding of how we obtain the Holy Spirit and compare it with error. But we will not compare it with error. You can do that yourselves in your own mind. But we will have an understanding here of Reformed theology. In our reading in Matthew and the start of Jesus' public ministry, his baptism, which is our baptism, R.T. France writes that baptizing in the Holy Spirit is a phrase used in the New Testament almost exclusively in the context of this contrast between John's water baptism and the salvation that Jesus brings. Only in 1 Corinthians 12 does similar language occur outside that specific context and the different phrasing there is by one spirit we are all baptised into one body. And this does not suggest that baptism in the spirit would have been recognised in the New Testament times as a separate baptism to the initial Christian baptism. The contrast between water and Holy Spirit baptism is not between two stages in Christian covenantal initiation, but between John's baptism and that of Jesus. Christian baptism adopted John's use of the symbol of water, but the use of the outward sign in no way detracts from the true spiritual significance of baptism into the Christian community, the church of which Christ alone is head. When we become Christians, God does not leave us isolated. He calls us to be baptised as adults if we have not been baptised already as children. And it's a baptism into covenantal fellowship with God. And with that, he brings us into church community. It is so important, especially in these days when so few call themselves Christian, that we recognise that church, your church community, is your spiritual sanctuary. Your home, spiritual home, where you find your brothers and sisters in Christ. Christian baptism symbolises, for John it pointed forward to, that same outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is the essence of our Messiah's saving ministry. We should note one important aspect here of Christ's baptism that differs to ours. God the Son incarnate is alone sinless. Hence the beauty of Matthew 3, of the Trinity, of the Trinity working in perfect harmony 
in inaugurating Jesus Christ into his ministry as the Son of Man. Jesus came to earth to carry out the atonement on the cross. And through the atonement on the cross and through the atonement on the cross alone do we have the right to be baptised in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Christ's baptism is set apart because he alone is holy and pure and at the start of his ministry the Holy Spirit was bestowed upon him. We because we come into a, re a, a realisation that Jesus Christ alone has paid the penalty for our sin and in godly sorrow recognise that he is our saviour and that we are freely forgiven when we come before him in faith and repentance. At that point of realisation, baptism also becomes a deep realisation to us of the Spirit's quickening in our lives. The Bible becomes alive to us. Fellowship amongst God's people becomes precious. A desire to turn up on Sunday becomes a blessedness. And we are guided by our, the Holy Spirit in our lives to keep short account of our sins, as we mentioned this morning. But more than that, to love, as we've been talking about Earlier in this sermon, this sermon, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. We require the atonement, the resurrection and the benediction of our great high priest at Pentecost before we could be baptised into the family of God, the church. We are buried with him by baptism and raised with him to eternal life. Romans 6, 4. Reads, therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. It is being baptised in the Holy Spirit that opens up our hearts to glean an understanding of who our leader, Jesus Christ, is and to yearn for the abiding. It is in the Holy Spirit who keeps us in the saving ministry of Jesus Christ and the desire to delve deep into Scripture and to increase our knowledge of our Lord. It is the Holy Spirit who keeps us in the inaugurated kingdom of God until it is consummated upon Christ's return when we will be, and for all eternity, fully in the presence of God. It is the Holy Spirit who has translated us from darkness into the light of God, the love of God, the eternal presence of God, as the adopted children of God. We have the Comforter, individually and corporately, the Spirit of Christ to keep us in Christ. We yearn for our Lord with groans that the Holy Spirit within us can only utter. Romans 8, 26. 
all the faithful in the Old Testament days longed for the days that we live in now. God dwells among us, among his new covenant church, in a complete and far more full way than he did with Israel. We have no excuse not to be yearning for our God. Why? Because he has fully empowered us to do that. Jesus' baptism is the perfect baptism. The baptism of the perfect Son of Man. That perfection we have entered into by faith through the atonement that he alone could achieve at Calvary. And that perfect baptism of Christ's is our baptism too. We now turn to uh, Paul and 1 Corinthians, but we actually touch on 1 Corinthians 12, 13 to begin with. For Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Christ and the Holy Spirit are in harmony in administering baptism, which incorporates us into the body of Christ as we have talked about. It is the church of Christ's through the ministry of word and sacrament and as we care for one another, that has the presence and power of the Comforter keeping us in Christ as our head, and so nurturing our growth as Christians. Before we come to 1 Corinthians 13, however, uh, 1 Corinthians 15 rather, however, the Comforter can only nurture our faith if we exercise our faith, develop our love for the Lord, develop our, our hearts yearning for him. And that in turn means that we must increasingly look to the future and the resurrection, the blessedness of the resurrection for God's people, which is this evening's title title this evening's theme but I hope now that what we the ground that we've covered so far gives us a realization that we are empowered to understand the resurrection is a blessedness and a hope set before us why because the Holy Spirit that we are baptized into makes it real to us implants that hope within our hearts and minds and makes it a central focus to us so that we think heavenward. Our hope must be in heaven, the palingenesis, the renewal of all things, where only righteousness dwells, where the former things are no more. Lethem writes that our resurrection at the end of the world will mark the completion of the church's salvation. And it is grounded on the resurrection of Christ. Christ's own resurrection 
marked the commencement of his reign as, as the mediatorial king, a reign that is to culminate in the total vanquishing of death and the resurrection of his church in the power of the Spirit. now turn to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul develops these themes at length in 1 Corinthians 15. Underlying his comments is an assumption that Christ's resurrection and, our resur and ours are, in essence, one reality. Therefore, the relation between the resurrection of Christ and ours at the end of the world is so close, so unbreakable, that if one part were not true, Paul says, the other would also be false. They are part of the same reality. And I think there's a useful analogy here. Einstein's physics demonstrate that the parts of a subatomic particle split in two and separated by infinite space, will behave identically. We cannot see our Lord face to face, but we see him with spiritual eyes now. And as we see him with spiritual eyes, as the Holy Spirit empowers us, the reality that Christ is risen is our reality too, that we will one day be risen to. We will be resurrected from the dead. And we will be given a new body that is fit for eternity. It is a hope that allows us to endure so much here on this earth as Christians as we mentioned this morning as we looked at Job. We are called not only to believe, but also to suffer. But as Paul mentioned, if we do not have a hope that is sure and steadfast, if we do not know with certainty that all will be good and made well, that perfection is ahead of us, if we do not have that, as Paul says, we are the most miserable of people. But the point is, brothers and sisters in Christ this evening, the point is, our hope is certain and sure. And as we yearn for our Lord, with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, we are exercising our faculties of mind and heart to habitually think upon the future that is coming when the eternal will enter into the temporal and everything we see around us will be changed. It's a rapture when Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. But as children of God, adopted children of God, we have the blessedness of knowing that we have gone through judgment before God's throne of justice, here and now as we live. 
because we've allowed God, as we were talking this morning, to enter into our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit, to quicken us, to make us malleable. We are clay, and he is the potter, and he is making us into the image of his Son. But it's a heart surgery that goes on. The old man must go. The new man must be installed. And is installed by the sanctification work of the Holy Spirit. But it is only installed as we add to our faith knowledge. We add to our faith knowledge of who Christ is. Glean an understanding that we are meant to be in his image. And as we do that, we are exercising our spiritual mind, the spirituality within us. We're exercising our faculties to habitually be thinking upon the Lord. It is important to do this. There is no other way to be happy in Christ. Some people think that they can be a Christian and not come to church. Some people think they can be a Christian and not read their Bibles. Well, they're backslidden Christians then. Because there's no other way to be happy in Christ than to exercise our spiritual hearts and minds. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. So coming back to our analogy here. The analogy here is that as the resurrection is a single phenomenon, its parts are only separated by God-defined time. Only God the Father knows when God the Son, the Messiah, will return to judge the living and the dead. And thanks be to God, our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Those who have genuine faith in Christ will be resurrected to eternal life where only righteousness dwells. And the horror of it all is that all others to eternal condemnation. But the main point here in 1 Corinthians is that the nature of the resurrection body is the same for both Christ and his people. We are so united with Christ now that there will be nothing strange to our eternal life with him. When we meet him at the resurrection, all the sin that clings to us but cannot claim us will be dealt with in an instant. He will look upon us with his eyes. As Revelation says, the eyes of flaming fire, and he will purge in an instant the sin, the sin that clings to us. We will be perfectly like him in the perfection of the palingenesis, the renewal of all things, the blessedness of the resurrection for God's people. This is our hope. This is what we yearn for and nothing will separate God's people from their 
eternal inheritance. Let us stand to pray. Almighty and everlasting Father, we come before your throne of grace, worshipping you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we praise you for the benediction that our high priest bestowed upon us at Pentecost in the sending of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to be with us until you, Lord, and our... You, Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour, return to judge the living and the dead. We praise you that the Comforter quickens us to a realisation that our hope is certain and sure. That the resurrection that Christ had nearly, well, over 2,000 years ago or thereabouts will be our resurrection too. And we will be so caught up in him that we will transition into eternity in the blink of an eye and be surrounded by his deep love for us and care for us. In the new heaven and the new earth where there is no more pain or suffering, where we will meet our departed, departed loved ones, where we will join with the church invisible and we will be one church for all eternity with our high priest, always Jesus Christ, as our head. Lord, we worship you and we adore you and we yearn for you. Lord, be with us as we enter into this working week and take the hope with us, Lord, every day that we sojourn here on earth. In the name of Jesus, amen. amen. We now sing our final psalm, which is Psalm 100, the first version. Psalm 100, the first version. All people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice.
stand for the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.